You'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to examine uh, the third illustration that Jesus gives to address spiritual pride. This is actually part four of uh, a series on spiritual pride that I started back in July. Then we had, a, we had the, uh, the Lord's Prayer we went through, and then we took a detour and had a Theology of the Family series. Uh, but this is addressing spiritual pride. So Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 18 through, excuse me, 16 through 18. The word of the Lord says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so that they will not be noticed, so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to hear your word. And now I pray, Lord, that the words that I speak be that which you have spoken, and that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to your people uh, to equip us, conform us to Christ, encourage us, and may Christ be honored and glorified in every area of our life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in the text that we just read, 16 through 18, it's part of this whole section, starting at chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through 18, where Jesus addresses the entirety of his disciples' spiritual life, their entire religious practice, and how it must be regulated and motivated by the glory of God alone. The entirety of our life, in fact, must be lived for for the glory of God, for the sake of his name. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. But we live in a day today where the world revolves around me, myself, and I. Fulfill your best life now, we hear. Avoid all things that cause discomfort in our lives. God wants you to live at ease without pain, without sickness, without troubles. You know, our first world Western civilization has so many blessings, but those blessings often make us lazy, make us apathetic, fatten us, cause us to be sluggish and apathetic to the spiritual disciplines that are commanded to us in the Bible. Uh, We love our comforts here in America, do we not? Uh, We want our uh, espresso nice and hot when we come to church. We want to be able to sit in comfortable pews. Uh, Not saying anything about the pews, they are comfortable. Uh, But we want to be able to sit back and hear a good, feel-good message. Help me feel good about myself. We want to live our life in comfort and ease. We don't want anything to disrupt us in our life. We don't, definitely don't want persecution uh, to come. Uh, we, we don't want things to happen to us that will cause us uh, to have to, to stand up and maybe be contentious when we're defending uh, the truth. We just want to kind of go about our lives and be comfortable and be safe and, and that's it. Live and die. Christians find themselves today doing all things for not God's glory, but for their own glory. Creating prideful hearts is what this does, who ultimately then seek after man's approval 
and not God's approval. Uh, even in the good deeds that we are commanded to do in Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, here in chapter 6, Jesus addresses Christian living and the motives behind our religious activities. Beginning in verse 1 through 16, Jesus covers the gamut of our Christian walk. He gives three illustrations to prove one point. He gives three illustrations, giving, praying, and fasting. And he does this to make one spiritual point, and that's to kill spiritual life, spiritual pride in his disciples. Jesus did the same thing in chapter 5 where he gave six examples, six illustrations to make one point, one truth about God's law. And so we've looked at each of these three examples, and today we're going to look at fasting. But we, also, we must remember that Jesus isn't giving these instructions about fasting or praying or giving in a silo. It's one overarching theme, and that is, what is your motivation for everything that you do? We must kill the spiritual lie that so easily creeps up in our heart. And the same thing happened in Jesus' day where you had the the hypocrites doing things to be seen by men, the same thing happens today. It's just in different forms. We too, friends, need to understand that we have our hearts so inclined. Our hearts are so inclined towards pride, even walking in the Spirit as a believer. Our hearts are inclined towards pride. Even when we do what God requires, our hearts so easily swell up in pride. Jesus here provides us, in the text, the grace that you and I need to be warned and to watch out for spiritual pride in our lives. In each of these three illustrations, in praying, giving, and fasting, Jesus gives a warning, a remedy, and a reward. A warning, a remedy, and a reward. So I want to look briefly at each of these in the context of fasting Uh, the warning, remedy, and reward. Uh, And then I want to give a brief biblical overview of fasting and how it relates to the Christian walk today. So the first thing we have is the warning. Uh, Jesus opens up this section of his sermon in in verse 1 of chapter 6 where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That word beware uh, in the Greek means to wake up, to pay attention, to take heed. It's a verb, and it's in the imperative tense, which means Jesus is commanding you and I by implication. He's commanding you, Christian, to beware, to take heed that spiritual pride not swell up in your life. This is an active duty for the believer. Jesus, uh, uh, the warning he gives is practicing your righteousness, it says, to be noticed by men. To be noticed by men. By men. So don't do your deeds of righteousness, whether it's praying, fasting, or anything else, to be noticed by other people. Now, this works actually in harmony with early in the sermon, in chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That text there. Jesus is condemning being a closet Christian. There's no such thing as a closet Christian, one who nobody around them knows that they're a Christian. 
So in 5 verse 16, he's saying, let your light shine before men. Be the light of the world. Be the salt of the world. So that when people see that you're glorifying God in your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. But the text today is different. The text today, he's condemning doing the right things for the wrong reasons. He's not saying don't go shine your light before men. To be, he's saying to, not to be seen by them. Uh, not to not shine your light <clears throat> before men. So he's condemning the motive, doing the right thing for the wrong reason. He says the same thing in each of these three illustrations in verse 2, 5, and in our text today in verse 16. He says, don't be like the hypocrites where they do these things so that they will be noticed by men. Look at verse 16. In regards to fasting, he says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. In each, each example, he calls these people hypocrites. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So the warning here is against having the wrong motives. Look at how he describes the hypocrites, how they fast. He says, do not be like them who put on a gloomy face. This word gloomy is an adjective, it's describing the face. It means to be downcast, it means to be sad, We've all seen people with gloomy faces, right? When you see someone that has a gloomy face, you automatically think, hey, something's wrong with you. And the hypocrites put on a gloomy face. And not only that, it says they neglect their appearance or they neglect their face. This is a verb. It literally means to disfigure or to even destroy or to, to render inoperable. Uh, that's what they do to their face. They neglect, they purposefully neglect their face so that men would see them that they're fasting. Now, some additional historical context that's going to help us here is that the Pharisees developed a tradition that they would fast twice a week. And they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Which coincidentally, in Jerusalem, get this, the days of the market, the market days were Monday and Thursday. These were the busiest days in Jerusalem. And oh, by chance, the Pharisees' tradition was that they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Probably not. So it happens to be the same days as the busiest days in Jerusalem, where they would go out, they would literally change the way they looked. They were known to sprinkle ashes upon their head, mess up their hair. They were known to whiten their faces to make it look more pale, you know, when you fast or if you're sick and you're not eating, your face gets pale, right? They would literally do these things. They would wear very dirty clothes. And they did this to be noticed by others. They did the right thing. Fasting is a good thing, as we'll learn. But they did the right thing for the wrong reasons. Now, before you say, you know, I would never do that, Mark. I would never do all that. Okay. Now, you may not go to that extent... Uh, to make pe other people notice the good deeds that you do. But nonetheless, we must guard against the very principle. And the only person who truly knows your motives is that is God himself. God knows your motives, and you're not 
fooling God. So the, the outward manifestation of the spiritual pride may look different. Uh, but nonetheless, God hates it all the more when you do the right things for the wrong reasons. God knows your motives. It actually says he weighs the motives in Proverbs 16, 2. God weighs the heart, Proverbs 24, 12. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 7 that God looks at the heart. So when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, the good deeds, the, the things that people say are good, uh, just remember that God is like, has laser eyes right into your heart. God sees exactly what your heart is thinking. He sees what your mind is thinking. He sees your motives. He knows why you did something, why you didn't do something. Uh, he knows why you did something so that you know, all these situations might change to work out for your favor. Even though you, you did something nice or children, your parents might see that you did something nice, but your heart, you did it because you wanted this and this thing to happen so that you would benefit, God sees right in that. God looks right in to you, your heart and my heart. Jeremiah seventeen ten, it says that the, the Lord searches the heart and he tests the mind. So friends, God cares about why you do things just as much as he cares about what you do. Jesus gives an example in Luke chapter 18 with the Pharisee. Uh, you know the story. The Pharisee goes to pray before God, uh, and it says that he prayed to himself. He was patting himself on the back. And what was he bragging about? Luke 18, 12 says this, that the Pharisee came and he came before God to pray, and he boasted, and he said, he said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. It says, I fast twice a week. There's that tradition, which, by the way, they were never required to fast twice a week. Uh, but he bragged on himself. Lord, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You see here, the Pharisee is exhibiting the exact thing that Jesus is condemning in the Sermon on the Mount. He's praying, right? The three illustrations that Jesus gives. He's praying about how awesome he is at fasting and giving. But he's doing it all with the wrong motives. The wrong motives. Yet the tax collector who we see in the story didn't fast, didn't give. He can't even lift his head to pray. But he comes in repentance, beating himself on the breast, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said that that tax collector is the one that went home justified. The Pharisee was doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Jesus uses the three examples, praying, fasting, and giving. These were known by the, uh, during that time, these were known as the most righteous religious activity. In early Jewish documents, these three activities were considered the pinnacle of Christian or Jewish activity. And Jesus uses these three examples to show his disciples that they actually mean nothing to God when they're done with the wrong motives. External works mean nothing to God when done with a wicked heart. The Pharisees' righteousness, quote, unquote, was merely external, which is not truly righteousness at all. The believer described in the Beatitudes in the first 
10, 11 verses as Jesus describes a true Christian in the Beatitudes has an inner righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of these hypocrites, the Pharisees and the scribes. A true believer's righteousness, friends, starts on the inside. It starts internal. It starts in the heart. And then it, it, it comes to fruition and it comes uh, to uh, completion, if you will, with external deeds. External deeds. Chapter 6 describes this contrast by exposing the scribes and the Pharisees' spiritual pri- uh, pride, with it, which is why he references, don't be like the hypocrites. He says it three times, over and over and over. Don't be like the hypocrites who have this outer righteousness, but inner are full of dead man's bones. Now, Jesus is warning of this trap, friends, that even the best of us can fall into. We become hypocrites, like Jesus says, when we do righteous deeds with the intent of being seen or being noticed by others. We become hypocrites when we seek the approval of men more than we seek the approval of God. Now, to bring this into today's climate, okay, praying, maybe, fasting, definitely not, and giving, not really, are not really seen as like the pinnacle uh, spiritual duties, okay? But you can imagine the most spiritual activities that you and I can think of if we see somebody doing Wow, they must be really spiritual. They must be really holy. Whatever those are to you, imagine that Jesus using those as the example to show when they're done with wrong motives, they mean absolutely nothing to God. So to bring this, I have a couple of examples. To bring this into today's culture, today's climate, Jesus could say the same thing about these spiritual activities as I think we might deem as holy or more holy, such as just reading the Bible. Uh, remember, they didn't really have a Bible to read, so uh, reading the Bible is not in one of the illustrations that Jesus gives, uh, but we today see somebody, oh man, they're always reading the Bible. They must be really holy. Well, Jesus could have said, hey, when you read the Bible, don't be like the hypocrites who read to be seen by others or to read so that others will see how much knowledge they have about the Word of God. Don't be like them, for they have received their reward in full. Or going to church. Going to church often is seen uh, as a holy activity. When you go to church, do not be like the hypocrites who go to church to be seen and to be noticed by others, for they have their reward in full. Or what about sort of in our Reformed circles? uh, What about studying theology or listening to godly podcasts, right? Or good sermons. Wow, they listen to so many good sermons. Wow, they're studying, studying all these theological books. They must be so holy. It's like Jesus could say, when you study theology or you listen to sermons or great podcasts about spiritual truths, do not be like the hypocrites who do these things to show others how much they know. For I tell you the truth, they have their reward in full. So are those things good? Yes, praise God. We should be listening to solid teaching. We should be studying theology. But the moment that we do it for the wrong reasons and not for the glory of God, it means absolutely nothing to God. God hates those activities because you're doing it for the wrong motives to be noticed and to be seen and approved by other 
people around you. So that's the warning that Jesus gives. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of fasting like the hypocrites do who disfigure their face, who literally change the way they look, who they alter their whole life in order for people to see them do this religious activity. So what is the remedy? He gives the remedy to have a single eye for the glory of God. In verse 18, he says, do it so that your fasting will be done in secret. He says, do it so that nobody will notice you. When you fast, in verse 17, anoint your head and wash your face. Instead of disfiguring your face, make it as if nothing has even changed. When you're fasting, make it so that nobody even thinks you're fasting. You know, I remember years ago when I was a a young Christian going to more of a a contemporary slash charismatic type of church. Uh, I think I was 18 or 19 years old. Uh, There was some, some folks that were so, I would say, people thought they were so spiritual. Okay, they were always kind of in the limelight, right? The, the ones that were so holy and spiritual. And I remember coming to church one day, and he just looked really bad, you know? And uh, I'm like, hey, hey, uh, greeted him or whatever. I'm like, you okay? You not feeling too well? He's like, yeah, no, I'm fasting. And that just, I'm like, totally rubbed me wrong. And I didn't know a lot of the Bible because I was a new Christian, but I was like, yeah, didn't Jesus say to like wash your face and make it look like you're not fasting? And he just kind of walked away. Uh, but that's what, that's what Jesus is talking about. When you're fasting, do it as in a way that nobody would even notice that you're fasting. Okay, so if you're fasting uh, throughout the day and you're at your workplace, uh, you know, do it in such a way that when lunchtime comes, people are like, hey, why are you eating? Why aren't you eating? Right? Make it, rearrange your schedule so that you're gone or go to the car and go pray and read the Bible or whatever so people don't have to put you on the spot. Right, so that you're not tempted to like, I'm going to show everybody how spiritual I am and tell them I'm, I'm fasting. Right, Jesus said, You just got your reward. That is your reward. As a matter of fact, He says in the text, When you do those things to be seen by others, you receive your reward in full. You receive it in full. So the remedy is to have a single eye for the glory of God. Whatever you do, remind yourself and Pray by the grace of God that he would help you to do it for the glory of God alone, no matter if anyone ever sees or anyone ever finds out. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I said it before, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we need to be understanding of our own heart, friends, on what causes spiritual pride in our own life. What spiritual activities do we like to do and then announce to the world that we're doing that would puff us up in pride? You know, for some people it might be, you know, verbally. For a lot of people nowadays it's with social media. Uh, You know, we got to be careful with social media that that we're sharing all these great spiritual activities that we do about reading the Bible or about praying or about evangelism or about whatever it might be because if that is tempting you to have a spiritual heart to post something about a spiritual good uh, deed that you're doing uh, and you know that it's going to puff you up and make you feel good when other people see it and like it, friends, you know what you need to do. You need to not post that thing. You need just to be quiet. Matter of fact, that is a good way to remedy spiritual pride in your life is to tell yourself, let nobody know these spiritual good activities that I am doing. 
Matter of fact, you can go even a step further and not even announce it to yourself. Have a bad memory. As Jesus said when he talked about uh, in the sermon earlier about giving, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Make it to where your spiritual walk is in such a way that you don't announce your good deeds to others and you don't announce it even to yourself. You forget about it. Have a, have a short memory. Uh, and to remedy the desires to be seen by men, we've got to have a high view of God and a low view of self and a heart change only brought on by the Holy Spirit. So we have to guard our hearts, friends, because pride will so easily, easily creep up into our hearts. So we have the warning, we have the remedy, and then we have rewards. Notice the reference to rewards. In each example, he gives a reference to rewards. In verse 18, today in fasting, he says, Do these things, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus says that if you practice your righteous deeds to be seen by men, that is your reward. But now, if you do it to honor God, if you do it for the the sole glory of God, it says that he will reward you when you do these things in secret so that the Lord sees. When you do it knowing with a, when you do it with an attitude as if, I don't care if anybody ever knows or sees what I'm doing. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm doing it for Christ. He says he will reward you. Now, what kind of rewards are these? Well, we shouldn't be doing it for the rewards. That would just negate the whole purpose. But he doesn't say what these rewards are. Uh, If you keep reading in the sermon, Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven versus treasures on earth. I believe he's referencing uh, these three examples that he just gave. When we do things for the glory of God and the God alone, we are storing up treasures for us in heaven. Now, I'm sorry, the scripture doesn't tell us what those treasures are. Uh, But God says that he will reward us. Matter of fact, in one or two of the examples, not only will he reward us with heavenly rewards, he says that your reward will be given uh, openly. He will give you an open reward. So we don't know what that is. It could be more peace. It could be more joy. uh, It could be, you know, things that God brings back to you in your life. We don't know, uh, but we shouldn't care, whatever it is. Right? Our reward is that we just glorify God. Amen? But we are promised rewards. Warning, we have the remedy, and we have the reward. So now what about fasting? Let's look at fasting just briefly. What is fasting? There's a lot of confusion on that. Uh, but here's, I want to give you a definition that I created here that I think is um, in line with the sort of a biblical overview of fasting. So very simple to say fasting is abstaining from food and perhaps water, but not always, for a determined amount of time to humble oneself in prayer, seeking God's help in a time of need. Fasting is abstaining from food for a determined amount of time to humble oneself in prayer, seeking God's help in a time of need. Here in the text, fasting in all of the New Testament, in the Greek, the word just simply means to not eat to abstain from food. Its sister word in the Hebrew means the same thing. Abstain from food. It just means to not eat. So I want to correct some misunderstanding because I hear oftentimes that, hey, I'm fasting TV. 
or I'm fasting social media. Now, while it's good to take breaks from those types of things that draw our hearts away from Christ and our devotion to Him, you can't say it's fasting, okay? Because fasting is not eating, okay? And it's for a purpose, as we'll see. So it's good to take breaks from those things, but it's not fasting. Fasting is almost always throughout Scripture accompanied with prayer and humility, with prayer and humility. Now, there's only one instance that I find in the Old Testament where there's an actual requirement uh, for the people of God to fast, and that's once a year on the Day of Atonement. Okay, I don't see any other areas in the Old Testament or the New Testament where there's an actual requirement uh, to fast a certain amount of time, a certain day, uh, a certain way. But what we do see, first of all, is that Jesus didn't say, if you fast. What did he say? He said, when you fast. So there is a, a presupposition that Jesus has that his people will fast. So what are some reasons to fast? Well, here are some reasons that I see throughout Scripture. Fasting for healing. David fasted for the healing of his son. 2 Samuel 12, 16. It said, David inquired of God. He sought the Lord for his sick child. And it says, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And then if you recount the story, when the child passed and died, he got up and ate. And they asked, why, why are you eating now? And you weren't eating when he was sick. And he said, what, what, what's the purpose of fasting now? Can I, can I do anything about it? He's already passed. So he was fasting, seeking the Lord in humility. And it says uh, in the text that uh, he was fasting while his son was sick, if perhaps the Lord would be merciful to him and not take his son. So he, he fasted for healing. Another reason, example, is fasting when mourning. This is all throughout the Bible, many examples. Fasting when mourning. Jesus actually used fasting and mourning interchangeably in Matthew 9, verse 14 and 15. When the disciples came to him, the disciples of John, excuse me, came to him and said, why do the Pharisees fast, but your, uh, no, excuse me, why do the Pharisees fast, yes, and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus, in verse 15, said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So you see, he actually uses mourning and fasting interchangeably there. He says, No, my disciples aren't going to mourn now, not going to fast now, but when I'm taken from them, they're going to fast. So, mourning and fasting. And then when David heard about the death of Saul and his son Jonathan, it says he mourned and fasted the rest of the day. 2 Samuel 1, 11 through 12. Nehemiah fasted and prayed when mourning about the news of Jerusalem's wall being destroyed and the gates being burned with fire. Nehemiah 1, 4 says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Many other examples, but many cases when there's mourning over something, a loss, uh, there's fasting. Another reason to fast is for God to relent his judgment. It's for God to relent of his judgment. This could be both individually uh, or relenting judgment corporately of a corporate body. 
And we see this in a few examples. Uh, First, Nehemiah, the example where he mourned when he heard of the Jerusalem walls being torn down and the gates being burned. Uh, It says that while he was fasting, he prayed, he also prayed to the Lord to forgive Israel of their sins and sought the Lord's favor to relent his judgment and find favor with the king to rebuild the walls. When Jonah brought the word of judgment upon Nineveh, the entire city repents, and the king himself fasted, seeking for God to relent judgment upon them. He actually proclaimed a fast. Jonah 3, verse 6 says, When the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and ash, uh, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. He proclaimed a fast. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both men and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. So we see that the king proclaimed a fast for God to relent upon his judgment upon Nineveh. And we saw and we see that God saw their deeds and he turned his, uh, he turned his wrath away from them. Also another example, Daniel, after reading the prophet Jeremiah, Uh, After reading about the desolation of Jerusalem and after reading about the 70-year captivity, which he was right in the middle of, prays a prayer of corporate repentance. And he did so with fasting. Daniel 9, 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Then Daniel in verses 4 through 8 gives this wonderful, beautiful prayer for the people of God, for God to relent his judgment upon the people. He's, he's praying uh, as a, almost a spokesperson for the people of God, fasting and praying, begging the Lord that the Lord would forgive them of their sins, forgive them of turning from his righteousness, forgive them of turning from his goodness, and calling open shame upon his people, confessing of their sins. Fasting can also be accompanied not just with corporate repentance, but individual repentance. When Elijah brings a judgment upon Ahab for allowing his wife to kill Naboth to take his vineyard, Ahab responds with repentance and fasting, and God relents his judgment upon Ahab. So, like the king and Nineveh, God relents when the people come before him in fasting and praying for God's mercy. I kind of liken that to our day. Do we not see the same judgment upon our nation today as we saw the judgment upon Nineveh? Do we not see the same judgment upon our nation as a nation that seeks to mutilate children and kill babies in the womb? 
The evil in our day, I believe, makes Nineveh blush. Should we not, as the people of God, pray with fasting for God to relent his judgment, for God to show mercy upon this land that at one point, even though imperfectly, bowed the knee to Christ? Should not the people of God stop boasting about how God has blessed the United States of America and start lamenting for his mercy? Should not the people of God be like Elijah or Jonah and speak truth to the people of our land that we are in fact under the judgment of God and unless we repent, God will bring this country to its end? God doesn't owe the United States of America anything uh, other than his judgment. I think it's very clear to see that. But we need less people going out there and saying, God bless America, and saying, God, relent your mercy or relent your judgment and show mercy upon America. That's what we need. We need more prophets speaking like Elijah and Jonah uh, so that God would use the word to bring people to repentance. We need that type of fasting and prayer for God to relent his judgment. Well, fasting can also be used to deliver Uh, to be sought to be delivered from evil or forces of darkness. We saw this with Esther. Esther called a corporate fast for all Israel to be delivered from the hands of evil who sought to wipe out the Jewish people. Esther 4, verse 16, we see this. David, in praying for deliverance from his enemies, you had impending uh, you had impending danger. You had, uh, you had the enemy seeking David and in many psalms. Uh, Psalm 35, 13 is just one where he was humbly fasting and praying that the Lord would deliver him from his enemies. Uh, also in Ezra, you have another example of a fast. <clears throat> Ezra 8, verse 21, where Ezra proclaimed a fast for three days. And he said that, we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and our possessions. So this was the second wave of of the return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Ezra called a three-day fast because the uh, the journey was dangerous, not just uh, from a climate perspective, uh, but from robbers and people who were along the way that that hated the Jews, that wanted to kill the Jews. And Ezra didn't want to ask for protection from the king because he had told the king that their Lord was their hand, the Lord's hand was upon them, protecting them. So he called a fast. So here's an example of praying and fasting uh, for uh, to be delivered from impending danger or the forces of darkness. One last example, uh, fasting to seek God's will. We see this in the early church. Acts 13, verse 2 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they have fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent, their, they sent them away. So they were seeking the Lord's will and they prayed and fasted. Same with Acts 14, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed.
they're praying to seek God's will for the church and for their life. But all occasions illustrated throughout the Bible have an underlying principle, and that's this, humility, bringing oneself low, submitting to God's sovereignty, his mercy, his will, his rule, and his reign. And that's what fasting does. Fasting, when accompanied by prayer, makes us more like Christ by denying our flesh, uh, by humbling ourselves, by bringing our flesh low to awaken our spirits to God, to awaken our spirits to God. So do you need direction in your life? Fast and pray. Do you struggle with sin? Do you have a besetting sin that's constantly causing you to stumble? Well, fast and pray. Is there an impending physical danger in your life? Or are you going to take a journey and you're seeking safe travels as Ezra did? Fast and pray. Do you need physical healing in your life or for another's life? Fast and pray. Does your heart grieve for the degradation of our culture, of the American Christian culture, as it does mine? Well, fast and pray for God's mercy and for the gospel to go forth in success. As I said at the onset of the sermon, we live such a comfortable life. Fasting gets us out of our little comfort zone. Fasting is hard. Now, there's no time limits in the Bible. You can fast one meal. You can set aside one meal and not eat and pray. You can fast 12 hours, not while you're sleeping, but from sun up to sundown. Okay? That might be, uh, there's no prescribed amount of time other than abstaining for a period of time determined by you uh, without food uh, and using that time humble yourself, seek the Lord, and pray. Or perhaps you can fast for a whole 24 hours. Um, you know, if you've never fasted before, I would recommend that you start something small. Uh, fast one meal, uh, a meal that you normally eat. Some people don't eat breakfast, and so don't fast breakfast and call that a fast, right? But if you normally lunch is your biggest meal, fast, fast one meal. Start there, okay? If you've never fasted before, Highly recommend not to say, hey, I'm going to fast 24 hours, uh, two days, three days. Uh, it, it won't work, okay? Jesus fasted 40 days. Moses fasted 40 days, okay? But they probably fasted a lot before then. Now, Jesus is God also, okay? So there's something there. But surely, they practiced fasting on an ongoing basis. And the food that they did eat was probably a tenth of the amount of calories that we take in. So their bodies are used to going that long without substance. So be wise uh, in your decisions. But we, I think we need to repent, all of us, for living such a comfortable life where we don't want to be uncomfortable. Uh, we want to keep our ease. We want to pamper our body and feed it constantly uh, and feed it not only with food, but also all of the white bread of the world, right? All of the entertainment, all of the stuff that makes us feel good. Uh, we need to repent of that. You know, the Christian life shouldn't be so easy and so pampering. The early church didn't have it like we do. And so fasting is a good way 
for us to humble ourselves, deny our flesh. And that's the, that's the mindset Paul had. Uh, Paul said, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beat in the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We need that type of spiritual discipline in our lives. We need to pray that God would grant us the grace that we need to stop being lazy Christians. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves and we, and we take one look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, not only Him, but looking at the men of the faith of old, we're lazy. And we got to repent. Repent with me, I am saying. Repent with me to get more spiritual discipline in our lives. And as a way, not legalistic, but for our love for Christ, friends, our love for Christ. So to conclude, I want to urge you to examine areas of your life where you've had spiritual pride. What areas can you honestly say that you are tempted to seek notice of others instead of doing it for the glory of God? And also ask yourself, what areas of my life am I a lazy and undisciplined Christian? Friends, if you can deny yourself the food for a day, you can abstain from almost any other temptation. If you can deny yourself of the stuff that your body needs to survive, and you can get disciplined in fasting, whatever those other besetting sins or whatever other those things that you have trouble with that you know the Lord is impressing upon you to, to do more or, or to do better or to do for His glory, whatever it is that you fast, you deny your body, you'll have the spiritual discipline to do those things you know you ought to be doing uh, in your walk. Finally, look unto Christ for our example. He is our example for humility. You know, we're celebrating the first advent of Christ in this Christmas season. And remember, the whole overarching principle of this portion of the sermon is what? Spiritual pride. And what's the opposite? It's humility. Through fasting, you become humble. And as we celebrate the advent, the first advent of Christ, how did he come into this world? When I meditate upon that, how he came into this world so lowly, where there was no room, the very creation that he created the very people he created had no room for his mom to give birth to him to come into the world they had no room for him and he was born in a manger which was a, a feeding stock for livestock inside a cave how lowly he became how low our redeemer came from his throne into this earth he should have came in as a king but he came in as a humble servant. So as we celebrate this Christmas season, and as we look to evaluate the spiritual pride in our lives, let us look to Christ as our example, and let us remember how humble he came to the earth, and how humble he lived his life. So humble he became obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Look unto Christ for your spiritual nourishment, and for your ultimate satisfaction and your approval. Christ should be the ultimate satisfaction and approval, not looking to men. 
Fear Him. Fear what He thinks you're doing, not what other people think you're doing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your word, that you've given us the words of life, the bread of life, that we need, God, to nourish us. And so, Father, as we consider these great truths about spiritual pride and having the right motives, Father, let us look unto Christ who always had the right motives, who always on earth sought to do things for the glory of God and for the love of his neighbor. Help us, God, as we seek, Lord, to obey your word, as we seek to to be spirit-filled Christians walking in obedience to your word. Help us, God, to have pure hearts. Lord, let us pray as David prayed. Father, search me, O God. Know my heart, and if there be any anything in my heart that's not pleasing to you, Lord, would you reveal it, God? Search our hearts today. Lord, as we turn our, our attention to the to the Lord's Supper, as we commune together and nourish upon you, Father, and your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, search us, know us, that we can make things right, that we can confess our sins, Lord, and seek, Father, to walk obedient to your word. We thank you, we give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name.